Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Stroke Busters, presented by the Institute for Stroke and Cerebrovascular Disease at UT Health Houston. Tune in for the latest in stroke care, research, community, and academia. I'm your host, Barbara Vigbe, joined by co-host Dr. Aidan Nazir, Vascular Neurology Stroke Fellow at McGovern Medical School. And for our third episode, we're joined by special guest, Dr. Sunil Shep, Vascular and Interventional Neurologist, Associate Professor at McGovern Medical School, Vascular Neurology Fellowship Co-Director at UT Health, and an SVIN board member. We're discussing Dr. Shet's career in endovascular and interventional neurology and his advice to trainees interested in the trending field. I wanted to start by asking you some uh, personal questions. What made you choose interventional neurology after your stroke fellowship? Given your experience in uh, education, what do you think of the different training paths that are involved in becoming an endovascular uh, physician? Do you think it's easier for the neurosurgeon or neuroradiologist to become an interventionist compared to our stroke fellows? I started getting interested in this field when I was in medical school. So uh, when I started my third year rotations, I really was very undifferentiated and really the truest sense of the word. I didn't have a particular area that I that I liked. I thought I kind of liked medicine more than surgery, but I, I really didn't know. And then my first rotation actually was uh, general surgery, and I, and I loved it. Uh, I, I had I had a great time. I had awesome mentors, and then I started thinking more seriously about doing something procedural or, or surgical. Um, and then I did uh, my neurosurgery rotation, and I, I also loved that too. I didn't have any particular neuroscience inclining inclinations before then, but uh, I really I just I just loved the I just loved the field, and, and so I was thinking about going into neurosurgery. Um, but then as I got more uh, experience clinically, I really just liked the field of stroke. I liked uh, thinking about cerebrovascular physiology, anatomy, and the pathophysiology of blood flow, uh, and the imaging related to it. So uh, as, I, as I got more and more interested in stroke, I started applying some of my, my lab work that I was doing in that direction. Um, and uh, it came down to a decision between uh, neurosurgery and, and neurology for me. So uh, ultimately, I chose neurology because because I liked uh, I like thinking about stroke um, and vascular disease from from the neurology point of view, and and then the neurointervention kind of uh, satisfied my my procedural desires as well very very neatly. So that's that's how I ended up where I am now. And and in terms of your second question, the the three pathways, I think all of them have really great reasons for why they're the right way to do it. You know, neurosurgery. Has a tremendous understanding of anatomy, uh, brain anatomy, and, and clinically, you know, deal with complications that arise from vascular problems. Uh, radiology, again, you know, coming from cross-sectional imaging background, the understanding of of um, uh, of cerebrovascular anatomy or just cerebral anatomy in general is going to be really, really good, and really brings a different skill set to the field. I, I I like neurology. I'm very, very satisfied with my choice um, coming from that from that neurology clinical background. I think brings a brings a lot of value to the field. The other thing, of course, is that the latest and greatest thing right now in neurointervention is stroke, um, and, and it will be for the, you know, at least foreseeable future with expanding indications and better ways that we're able to treat these patients faster, more effectively. There's just, there's just so much innovation in this area right now. So uh, that, of course, marries very naturally with the neurology background. I, I, think, I think all of them are good. Um, with the current uh, 
uh, environment being so so focused on stroke, I think neurology is particularly a strong way to do it. Um, but that's my my personal bias, and and I think moving moving forward, um, it will continue to be a, a nice way to do it. Um, I, I do think that over time, stroke uh, is not going to be the only thing that that uh, that we focus on and the level of detail that we are now. It will come and go like like everything does, but uh, but right now I think is a is an awesome time for neurology training center in the field. Very interesting. I always thought being a neurosurgeon gives you that early advantage. My next question I want to ask you. Uh, since you brought your research interest and your lab, your interest in AI and machine learning and how you incorporate that in your neuroimaging uh, field, where do you think is the future of AI machine learning and how do you think it fits in the stroke world in coming years? Yeah, so, you know, I, I always wanted uh, research to be a large part of my career. Um, and in medical school, it was, it was in a um, systems biology lab that I that really kind of cut my teeth in the world of research, and it was uh, studying mitochondria uh, at the Broad Institute at MIT and, and Harvard Medical School, and um, it was it was really rewarding to work with an awesome mentor and really be um, you know inaugurated into, the, into this in this field of research. Um, but as I became more and more active clinically, my research interests moved more towards diseases that I was treating and, and more kind of clinically applicable problems. And imaging was always something that I really uh, enjoyed. Um, even when I was doing the systems biology work, I was imaging cells, which which I loved, you know. And so, so imaging was always something that that uh, piqued my interest. Um, machine learning is is something that uh, you know, has become much more uh, popular recently, and has a lot of has a lot of uh, potential for automating uh, interpretations and, and just improving the way that we understand the diseases too. I think you know. Beyond, beyond what we're using it now for currently, you know, with with Rapid and Viz and, and these products that people are so familiar with, I think there's a lot of academic potential too, and just in terms of probing, uh, imaging for for questions around sugar disease. So, um, you know, in terms of how it how it blends into what I do in my my career, I think I think imaging plays a very very central role in any kind of sugar specialty. Uh, and using a machine learning tool to to understand it better uh, is just another is another facet that that we should explore. But um, yeah, I, I always had a kind of quantitative background. I always kind of like doing mathematics and and, uh, and and analyzing data in that way. And so this this has been something that uh, has has again just married very naturally with my interests. Very interesting that stroke field and the research involved has definitely picked up in the last decade or so and adding more facets to it is um, just going to help us understand it better. Talking about research again, um, what do you think are your top three pivotal trials in the past decade? What do you think, you know, from the ongoing trials or the in, uh, upcoming trials, which ones do you think are expected to change our stroke and endovascular practice? Well, the, the trials that gave me my job were the ones in 2015. Um, you know, when I was an endovascular fellow, actually, when I was about to start my endovascular fellowship, was 2013, and I still remember that that uh, ISC and uh, and you know the the negative trials IMS3 and the other studies were released, um, and papers were being published about how we should stop training uh, endovascular fellows. And that the field is saturated and stroke is dead and and you know doom and gloom 
And that was really not very encouraging for someone who's about to start their ambassador fellowship that, that summer. So um, 2015 happened and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the entire landscape so changed so quickly. So from a very selfish point of view, I, I, I love all of those, I love all those 2015 ambassador trials. Um, but, but moving uh, to the future, in terms of the world of stroke, I, I do think that that thrombolytics uh, are, are going to be more and more effective. We've already seen some really nice data out of Tenecta plays. Um, I think we'll continue to see better data out of Tenecta plays. And, and I think just projecting the future 10, 15 years, you know, I, I don't think we're going to be pulling out as many clots or, or you know, doing these emergency uh, surgical procedures as, as we've been doing in the past. So I think. Um, some of the ongoing trials and some of the completed trials around Tenecta Place and I think up, upcoming lytics will be will be very important to kind of change the field. I'm also continuing to be intrigued by neuroprotection. You know, you know, it's, it's it is a four letter word in a sense in this field, but now that we have the ability to open up the vessel, the the ask from neuroprotection neuroprotective agents is less. We just need them to keep the brain alive for a little bit longer. So I think we will see some really nice stuff around there. We've already seen some nice stuff come out of those areas as well. Um, and then, you know, near and dear to my heart is are, are the imaging imaging studies. You know, I think the future of stroke treatment is going to be uh, simpler, simpler and faster. Um, so most of the trials that were around thrombectomy and even some of the current trials around thrombolysis uh, really require imaging that that's relegated to to advanced comprehensive stroke centers and, and i think it's it's and the onus is on us to stop doing that because we need to start thinking about how we can treat stroke where it happens and it doesn't happen at comprehensive stroke centers it happens in the community uh, at smaller hospitals that's where the majority of, these, of stroke presents and so i think instead of asking you know how does stroke look on these fancy software and fancy fancy imaging techniques we can only acquire at a handful of places we really should be asking, using the tools that we have available to us, where stroke shows up, how can we best treat stroke? I think that kind of turning the question and refocusing it on a more you know, pragmatic or patient-centered uh, perspective is, is going to be the way to do things moving forward. I guess some of our colleagues at UT have shown interest, um, actually benefit in helping patients out in the community with Dr. Grada's MSU trial and small power double neurology um, colleagues showing improvement at. I wanted to also congratulate you on a recent uh, R01 research grant treating patients at, the, um, at their spoke. I wanted to ask you how you balance your busy schedule of being an endovascular uh, attending and your research. Uh, we all know that endovascular is a very, very busy specialty. I think anyone who wants to be a clinician and do research uh, is in the same boat, which is trying to find time to make both jobs work. To a certain extent, you're competing, not, not in a negative way, but you're, you're competing with people who do each one of those things full time. And so to do to do those both well, because you, you don't want to sacrifice on, on the care you provide in your patients in terms of being the best clinician you can be, but you also have a lab to run and, and you want to make sure that you're doing the best job you know, in terms of your research group and, and your own kind of personal goals. That that balance is is always a tricky one to strike, and and um, you know I don't think there's there's any magic uh, to making it happen. Um, one thing I will say though is is I think people ask this question 
and they, uh, you know, it's in this line of like, you know, how do I kind of do how I, how do I kind of do academics while also being a clinician? And I think and we had this conversation too. I think you and I. Yeah. Um, I think what I told you then is is my general answer, which is, uh, you know, it, it has to just come from you. So if you want to do academics and if you want to write papers and get grants and advance the field. Uh, that has to be something that comes from you. If that's if that's something you want to do with your time. Uh, then then that's something that that you uh, you know has to come natural from you. No no one can kind of say okay now you know Aiden sit down and and finish this grant and and make a lab. Uh, so that that has to be your own kind of drive and desire. And if you have it, great. And and then you will find time to make it work. Um, and it may take more effort than than you anticipate, but. If that's something that that you know is gonna be a part of your career, and you just you just want to have as a part of your life, then you just have to make it happen. A question that's quite quite kind of personal to me as well, because I I like education and working with trainees. Um, so as a co-director of the UT Health Vascular Neurology Stroke Fellowship, what advice do you have for stroke trainees or neurology residents who aspire to train and specialize in endovascular and stroke? Yeah, so like I was saying earlier, I think it is a fabulous time to be a neurology trainee and be interested in, in intervention. Um, I think it's a wonderful way to take care of patients. Um, I also think that doing endovascular training makes you better vascular neurologist. I think your understanding of anatomy and physiology uh, and level of comfort with, you know, let's say giving heparin or, or thrombolytics or whatever else. Um, is greatly improved once you've actually been physically, you know, inside brain blood vessels, and, and your your understanding is just much richer. Not to mention all the the details you can get from angiography. Just just angiography itself will tell you so much about about brain uh, neurovascular function. So um, I think it's an awesome time to do it. That's the first thing I'd say. Um, second is um, I think people focus a lot more on the technical aspects of of neurointervention. So you know, learning about this catheter and this wire and, you know, why a solitaire and why not aspiration, you know, at, at the resident, certainly the resident level and to a certain extent, the stroke fellow level, in my view, those questions really do not matter. Uh, you know, and any or all of those possibilities in terms of treatments are fine, but what, what trainees at that level should be thinking about more is getting a much richer understanding of, of anatomy particularly for neurology trainees, uh, learning uh, vascular anatomy, uh, learning skull-based anatomy in general, and then learning to think in three dimensions. So looking at the angiogram, looking at the cross-sectional imaging, putting those two together, understanding the parameter of the skull base, uh, what's going in, what's going out, what's nearby. Uh, that I think is much, much more valuable than the thing that I think most people focus on which are the kind of more technical aspects of the procedure, which, which, you know, are in my mind, actually the least important thing. That's very fascinating. Being with you in the lab, I was able to better understand the three, 3D dynamics um, of cerebrovascular anatomy and physiology. Uh, Dr. Shed, in recent years, uh, many neurology trainees and stroke trainees have uh, shown more interest in endovascular fields and more and more, more and more trainees are trying to pursue the endovascular uh, field through stroke training. Um, and I have personally seen a big difference in my understanding of endovascular better here, being with you and um, 
Dr. Spiegel and others in the lab and being able to scrub into cases. Um, what are the changes uh, and what are the other new things that we have included in our endovas uh, sorry, stroke fellowship uh, to kind of hone in on those skills and uh, kind of provide some more mentorship in that case? Yes, Aiden, you're right. There, there is a lot of interest uh, in neurology, particularly vascular neurology trainees in doing neurointervention. And I think a lot of that comes from all the progress we've made in treating large vessel occlusion stroke with thrombectomy. Uh, you know, we just finished our, our application cycle, and, uh, and I'd say anywhere from 30 to 50 percent, 30 to 50 percent of the applicants were interested in endovascular, you know, some way or another. So it, it's it's a really massive number. And just to go back to the question before about uh, about the other specialties, um, you know, we we have many, 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 many more applicants to our endovascular fellowship coming from neurology background than any other background. And I think that has to do just with with numbers. I mean, there's there's so many neurologists, and so many of them are interested in, in intervention. So um, I think it is again just a really natural extension of of the field. You know, we take care of stroke patients, and we want to be able to provide complete care uh, for stroke patients. So um, there really is an explosion of interest. That's something we've tried to capture in our in our vascular neurology fellowship here as well. So as you know, we've started to incorporate um, simulation training. So um, using flow models and uh, simulated thrombuses so so you guys can get some hands-on practice doing thrombectomy again just so you see what the procedure is like and what these devices are and, and just gain literacy in, in, in what the procedure is and then also incorporating uh, the vascular neurology fellows into our endovascular procedures so we added uh, a dedicated endovascular Rotation where the, the stroke fellow is expected to scrub in to cases and, and uh, play a role in the management of these patients before, during, and after the procedure. Uh, and then also in the clinic, in the outpatient setting. So um, I think it's a much more robust exposure. Again, my, I think the goal is not, not every vascular neurologist is going to uh, do intervention. In fact, you know, the minority will, but almost all, all the vascular neurologists will play a role as a gatekeeper in determining who gets thrombectomy. It's a very important role to play. I think to do that role well, you have to understand what the procedure is, you know, even just at a rudimentary level. What are the risks? Why do we say some patients are candidates and some are not? How does the anatomy make a difference? So, so just understanding just understand the fundamentals of the, of the techniques and the, uh, and the procedure, uh, procedural aspects will, will make a much better uh, decision or much more educated decision on the role of of a non-interventional vascularologist. And that's that's something we've tried to, to push in, in our fellowship here. Yeah, I would say personally, I've uh, also experienced feeling much more comfortable now um, in decision-making as well as understanding what goes into the thought process for taking patients for endovascular procedures, being in the lab with you and other uh, endovascular attendings here. Not only that, I've also felt more comfortable in enrolling more people in research here. So it's been a, it's been a great experience. Um, and thank you so much for taking out time today out of your busy schedule to talk to us about, about your interest in endovascular and stroke. Thank you for tuning in. That concludes our third episode of Stroke Busters with Dr. Sunil Sheth discussing his academic and research career in endovascular trials and thrombectomy. 
If you're enjoying our series, please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at UT Health Stroke to be the first to know when we release new episodes. Don't forget to visit our website, utstrokeinstitute.com, for more information on the Stroke Institute.